Isn't that a beautiful song? That song illustrates so much of what we're talking about, both in this series and even in what we're asking ourselves to dream about and above and beyond. Jesus is waiting. There are people, some of them are us in those pictures. But there are people just like us and people just like those pictures all around us every day. And the whole invitation of this thing that we're talking about in terms of abstract terms, like using the term problem of evil, sounds so abstract and so obscure, but the problem of evil is, is seen in that song and seen in those pictures and, and seen in his invitation to us to, to not just answer it with intellect, not just answer it with words, not just answer with ideas, although those ideas are, are, are good. And in fact, the Bible teaches that, that, uh, that our thinking and psychology teaches that our thinking, our feelings tend to follow our thinking. So it's important for us to look at these ideas that we're talking about. But it's even more important that we dream God's dream for us. Not just me, not just for what we do in ministry here, but for each of you in your daily life. How can you come alongside where Jesus is already waiting for you to come with him to touch somebody's pain and to walk them through the problem, this thing we call the problem of evil? Today we're going we're to have a message that's a little bit more complicated to follow in some regard. And so I've supplied for you uh, a note paper, if you want, to take some notes on. And I want to encourage you to do two things with it. The, the little diagram with the lightning bolts is going to appear behind me on the screen here. That's a little bit different than normal. So if you want to take notes, that's where you're going to see those uh, aspects of the thing show up. But, but I want to encourage you to do one thing else. I want to encourage you, as we're talking today, I'm sure that what I'm saying is going to elicit questions that we're not going to answer. Maybe we'll answer a few of them later in the message, but it's probably going to elicit a lot that I'm not going to answer. I want to encourage you on your paper, as those questions come to mind, in the moment they come to mind, write them down. And I want to encourage you to do that in, in first person like you're talking to God, saying, God, why this? God, what about this? This doesn't make sense. Or, or what about this thing, God? What do you think about that? Why do you do this? Okay, so would you do that today? And at the end of the message, I'm going to invite you to turn any of those questions in you want, uh, either to one of the staff or in boxes at the back. Um, today, as an introduction to our message, I, there's, there's been two events that have happened in Arizona in the last couple of weeks. One of them is a very serious event that illustrates this whole problem. It's the, it's the mass murders. And, and that is a very serious very real illustration of what we're talking about today. And Lord, may you bless those people who have lost people. May you bless the people who are wounded. And may you bless those who are emotionally traumatized by it. The second one is completely less than serious, but it illustrates our point really well. And we're going to introduce it with this video. Six months ago, nobody would have, you know, bet their last out to say that Auburn University is winning the national championship. But now, on January 10, 2011, you know, we're smiling right now saying, you know, we did it. I just can't be more blessed to be a part of a whole team like this. Man, God was with us. Our defense played out. <laughs> God was with us. I'm sorry, I'm an Oregon fan. 
Tim Kewen of ESPN wrote this article surrounding that phrase, and, and I think it does a really good job of illustrating some of our points that we're going to talk about today. Uh, he says, Gene Chizik distilled, in, distilled it all into a simple proclamation. God was with him. How nice of God, he writes, really, to look down upon the Auburn coach and his many noble athletes and bestow upon them the BCS championship. And how sad for Chip Kelly and Oregon, forced to walk off the field at the stadium sponsored by the University of Phoenix, which, by the way, is a for-profit organization with no religious affiliation, and knowing that they were thwarted not only by their own reckless decisions, but by God as well. Perhaps, Kuhn says, we have a new definition of a rough night. Losing a heartbreaker on a field goal at the last play of the game is bad enough, especially when the drive's signature play is a classic hair-splitting football rule interpretation on a tackle that apparently wasn't. But imagine how much worse it was to learn afterward that you were working against not only the formidable Auburn Tigers, but also the Almighty. It could be too much to handle, he says. Although maybe it makes it easier for Chip and the Ducks to throw up their hands and say there really was nothing they could do after all. After all, literally, it was out of their hands. If nothing else, it probably would have made the Ducks think twice about showing up if someone had had the courtesy to tell them the enormity of the opposition. But still, the thought that God was putting his considerable psychic weight behind a team that includes a player with the questionable ethics of Nick Fairley cast doubt on the whole God enterprise. Now, I, I mean this totally humorously, but it really illustrates for us one major view of looking at this whole problem of evil, which affects almost all of us at one time or another. And Greg Boyd, uh, in his book, puts it, puts it in this terms. He calls it the blueprint approach. This is the idea that God controls everything. And therefore, every circumstance, everything that happens in life must have been from Him. And it leaves us with this God who we either, we, we think He must be just this capricious thing, this, this malevolent thing, this, this God who loves to just trick us and throw a curve at us and see how we're going to handle that suffering and, and just liking to do stuff like that. And, and when we think of God that way, that He controls every single circumstance, we wander between these two feelings of guilt and anger. We, we're guilty because we go, we must have done something wrong. We must not be good enough. And, and, then, and then later on, we end up being angry because we go, well, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do to get out of this. So it would be nice, God, if you were clear to tell me what I need to do to appease you so we can get this over with, right? And I, the suffering can end. And in some instances, like Kuhn ends his article, it comes to the conclusion that there is no God because God could not love an SEC team. Ah, I heard it. I figured I'd get an amen on that one. Kuhn's thoughts are not unlike thoughts that we have. In fact, one of the questions I read last week, which I'm going to reread, really defines and really encapsulates so many of the questions that were submitted in the thinking. The question goes like this that was submitted. It says, why does God allow the really horrible things to happen like child abuse and sexual abuse and rape? I understand, it goes on to say, he has a plan for everything. But it seems there should be a less painful, less horrific means to fulfill that plan. And see, when we look at this whole problem, it distills down to three very simple things. On the one hand, if God is all-powerful, and on the other hand, if He is all-good, 
then why evil? Where does evil come from? How can there possibly be evil? This argument was, was first, one of the first episodes of this article being written was, was by a guy named Epicurus 300 years before Jesus came. And let me, let me just summarize it, kind of his, his way of thinking. If God is willing, meaning he's good, but for some reason he's unable to deal with evil, then he is feeble at best. And that can't be God. If he is able, meaning he's all-powerful, but he chooses to not, he's unwilling, then he's really not good. He's just envious or malevolent. And that can't be God either. If he is both good, all good, and all-powerful, then where does evil come from? And great philosophers and teachers like David Hume and H.G. Wells and Bertrand Russell have concluded from this argument that God does not exist because it's impossible to have all-powerful, all-good, and to have evil. Most approaches when we deal with this problem of evil choose to limit one of those three things or eliminate it altogether. For example, if God's not all-powerful, then we find ourselves in this cosmic battle in which we're not really sure that justice is ever going to be done, that evil is ever going to be done away with, that our pain is ever going to be resolved. And this actually affects us in the church a lot because we find ourselves talking sometimes in the church about spiritual warfare and about how strong sin is and how strong Satan is and, and how, how we can't really trust God and we're not sure if life is going to really go well because, because Satan can come and interrupt it all and we, and we start limiting God's power. Or, or sometimes in our theology or as Christians or our belief as Christians or even as our belief as non-Christians, we choose to limit God's power in another way and we come up with this argument that says, well, okay, there's all these natural laws that he created and he's limited himself so he can't operate outside of those and therefore he can't really intervene. It's just all these laws in motion and it's just up to us now. And he really can't help. And all of those views leave God limited. The view was was most poignantly put forward by a guy named Harold Kushner in the 1980s in a best-selling book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And, And the question distills down to this. Are other forces, demonic or human or our own sin, so out of God's ability to control that he has no ability to resolve pain, suffering, and evil in our life? Now, the other way is to say, yeah, he's all-powerful, we're okay with that, but, but to say, well, maybe he's not all-good. Because he creates suffering, because he does evil things, because he does things that we don't like, then maybe he's really not all good. Maybe he's just a little bit of good. Maybe he's, maybe he's just, just a capricious kind of, kind of person who just likes to trick us and, and doesn't mind throwing a curve and saying, how are you going to deal with this? And, and, and likes looking at us suffer. And that ends up in our approach to God in our faith a lot of times by saying, God, if I just have enough faith, if I, if I just do the right thing, then I'll be healed. And we try to live life appeasing an angry God so he'll 
So he'll take the suffering away. And when we go through life going, what do I, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? I'm not good enough. I don't have good enough faith. God can't love me. So what do I do to get rid of this? And then there's the approach of saying there's no such thing as evil. It's just a figment of our imagination, which is the, which is the view of Christian science. That sin is only a human construct. It's only something we make up in our minds that different people think differently about. And, and really, if we all just got on the same page, or, 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 or here's how we deal with a lot of times. We say, oh, evil really isn't there. It's just a lack of education. So if we really just educated everybody, everybody would be just fine, and we wouldn't have this problem. Or we, or we come at it psychologically by saying the whole goal of life is to just simply self-actualize. So whatever you think is good, whatever you think is bad, live by your conscience, do your best, be your best. It doesn't matter if you think differently than I do. There really is no evil. It's just what you think. And we hear that frequently in today's society. Now, I want you to close your eyes for a second. I want you to think back to the last time you had pain in your life, and maybe maybe the last time you said to God, I could use a little help here, which one of those three things was representative in your life? Were, were, you, were you struggling with God not being powerful enough? Were you struggling with the fact that he's maybe really not good? i got to perform. i just got to find the right thing to please him. Or were you struggling with the fact that, well, maybe this really isn't evil at all and maybe I should just think different about it? As we move on, I'm going to ask a question that seems at first to be kind of a dumb question. What is evil? What is evil? Well, you go, that's a dumb question. I know what evil, I know what's evil when I see it. Right? Well, there's, there's actually a lot of commonality in definition among both Christian and non-Christian. And, and, and the, most, the, the most common view is that, that evil is a corruption of something. It's, it, it's, it's, like, a, it's, like, a, it's like a corpse as to, is, is as to a living human. It, it's a corruption of, of what that living thing was meant to be. It's, it's like a, a tree that's rotting instead of being alive. It's, it's a corruption of that. It's like cancer that's, that's a corruption of, of good cells. And, and that that's what evil is. And, and, and you'll find a lot of agreement on that issue as the only sound or, or the main sound definition of evil in the world among both Christian and non-Christian alike. But, but the interesting thing is that that definition in and of itself takes us back to the core point of last week's message. How can you define evil unless there is something infinitely, perfectly good? You cannot even define evil outside of this concept of the Creator and the created. The perfect all good, not partially good, but all good God. Because unless you have all good, you don't know what corruption is, right? You know, some of you might argue with that saying, well, we don't have to have God to define what evil is. My conscience tells me. This moral compass in me tells me what evil is, right? We all feel that. We all have a sense of a conscience, right? And we all argue that, oh, you don't absolutely need God to know what evil is because I know it when I see it. 
But let me ask you a question. Are you perfect? The obvious answer, no, right? We all know that. We'll all say that. Well, if you're not perfect, then how do you know where you, if your line of where you draw the line between good and evil is actually where the line is? Because I can, I can find this person over here who, who wants to legalize marijuana who would say that's good, and I can find a person over here who says absolutely not. I can, find, I can see an interview or, or go back through historical documents and records and see that Hitler believed fully that he was on a divine mission with a clear conscience to do what he was supposed to do. We can look at interviews with mass murderers and they can tell us that they thought what they were doing was right. They were driven by what they thought was right. Where is that line? How do we know when that's drawn? Unless there is a perfect definition, we cannot even come to a conclusion of what is moral and what is not, what is good and what is evil. The very definition requires a creator. In fact, the amazing thing is if you take the Truth Project, you'll see interviews of some of the leading philosophers who are atheists today, people who are teaching at Stanford and Cambridge and all over the world who would absolutely agree with that statement that I just made. They are atheists, and they would tell you you cannot define morality or good or evil outside of a creator. In spite of that, they've rejected the idea of a creator. So where does this even moral compass in us come within us because we all sense it and it comes down to another absolute that we believe as christians it comes down to genesis 127 god created man in his own image the very fact that god created us in his image in his likeness with a sense of his goodness is the origin of our ability to even have a moral compass sin skews it but that's the origin of it. Now hold that thought. So where does evil come from? Who's to blame? Where is God in all this? If he's truly good and all-powerful, then evil cannot be attributed to him because that would either mean he's not all good or not all-powerful. So where does it come from? Now again, go with me in your mind for a minute. Just, just imagine this. Now, guys, you may not want to admit this, but you know, probably you've had this experience too. Think back to when you were really, really little. You were a very young child, and you had your doll. Guys, come on. Some of you had your doll. And some of you even had those cool little dollies that you pulled the string, and they talked, right? Or maybe you had this wonderful invention of these, of these dollies that you could bottle feed, and they would wet their pants, which I guess made sense back then, but ah, it's just kind of a strange concept. Did holding that doll satisfy your needs for love? Or think of yourself. You're all alone. There's not another human being within a 100 miles of you, okay? Put yourself in that place. And you're sitting in that place and you're watching a romantic movie. Or you're sitting in that place and you're playing a video game. Or you're sitting in that place and you're watching porn or looking at pornography. Do any of those things meet your need and satisfy you at a deep level what you want? Or maybe think of it this way. I've dabbled a little bit in speech recognition software. A few years back I got a program and was working with it and you know they, they advertise 180 words a minute and, and it does 180 words a minute. They say 98% accuracy but apparently I don't enunciate well enough. So my 180 words a minute is more like 100 words 
that makes sense. That's actually what I said. And then interspersed in between there is the other 80 words that don't really make sense in context. So it ended up being a, fruit, a fruitless effort for me. But the really cool thing about speech recognition software today is that it can read back to you what you said. And you can pick a male voice, you can pick a female voice, you can pick a British accent, you can pick whatever you want, and it'll read it back to you. Now imagine having a conversation with your speech recognition software. How satisfying is that going to be? Okay, go with me one step further. Now close your eyes. You are exactly as you are now. Life, all your capabilities, everything. Nothing's changed about you, but... Everybody around you, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your work associates, everybody around you, none of them have free will. How would you like that? Now, let's, let's get past the first day or two or two weeks of the fantasy of what might be, you know, the, the spouse or the kids doing exactly what you want them to do. But think about a couple weeks down the road, no personality. All they do is do what you want to do, want them to do. They never initiate any love. They never initiate any creativity. Don't we all know, especially if you've been around kids and, or had kids, don't we all know one of the most beautiful things about them, the things that we love the most is, is when they're two and three years old, especially those cute little ways they express their will, even when they're rebellious or, or those cute little ways they try to express their love to you. Isn't that really the crux of what we want in relationship and the meaning that we want in life? You see... There's this answer that is so often treated by us as a pat answer to the problem of evil. But when you think of it in the terms I've just walked you through, it really is an important issue. Love demands free will. Without free will, there is no love. Because objects, robots, pictures, movies, virtual reality cannot satisfy the longing of our heart because they cannot love. They can only respond as directed. And God himself is not just defined as good. He's defined as loving. In fact, he's not just loving. He is love. He's the definition of love. And therefore, he creates us with this nature and desire to love him. Norman Geisler says this, forced love is rape and God is not a divine rapist. You see, God created us in his own image. His own image is to love and for us to freely love him back. And it's wrong from a Christian perspective to say that evil originates with God in any way at any time. James 1.13 says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century made the argument this way. He said there's first and second causes. God is the first cause. He is completely loving, completely good, completely all-powerful. He created everything. Angels and humans are the second cause. If the second cause by free will, because they're created with free will, because that's the nature of God, chooses to not do what the Creator wants them to do, chooses to become judges of the Creator rather than staying in a submissive role, chooses to do something other than what they were designed to do, then 
that moral issue of evil cannot be laid upon the first cause, God. It is squarely on the human race. And God is not to blame. A close friend of mine, think of it this way. Wonderful, wonderful dad. His wife was a wonderful mom. Parents anybody would ever want to have. Raised their kids in, a, in the faith and raised their kids to know God and to love God in a very gracious atmosphere where they, where they experience God himself. And, and one of the kids rejects God and walks away from God. But the other two would tell you today that, that, that the reason their life is so good is because of God's direction and leadership in their life. And, and another friend of mine, wonderful parents, again, that you'd just, you would love to have them as your mom and dad. One of their children chooses to, to choose drugs and, and, and dangerous sex, and, but the others are just fine. Is it the parents' fault? No. There is this issue of free will. Whereas God created the fact of free will, humans perform the acts of free will. And we can perform them either good or bad. God made evil possible because free will is part of his nature of love. It's automatically a possibility. But creatures make evil actual. And the reality is Scripture teaches us that this fact in humans not just is an act, but it actually changes our nature. And we're going to illustrate this on the, na- on the main screen. The, the Bible teaches that creation, God created us all good, loving. Everything was perfect. There was no evil. The only evil present was was temptation from, from Satan, but, but Satan and the demons who fell and chose on their own through free will to not follow God did not have the power to institute evil against us. All they had the power to do was to tempt. And then we have this, this violation of the creator-created relationship that we talked about last week where we put ourselves in this position of judging the creator, whether he's really good, whether he's really holding something from us or not. We become the judge of the creator, and, and that's the basis of sin. And, and, and it says that that changed us from this perfect nature of creation, this good, very good creation, to having what the Bible refers to as a sin nature. In Genesis 6, 5, it basically says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on earth and how it had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And, and we see ourselves trapped. Our nature has changed. The sin has changed us radically. It's pervasive in us. And then God goes into this plan to set the stage to provide a complete solution to the problem of evil. And, and to, to, perfectly, to perfectly be loving and to perfectly be just, to perfectly be merciful and to perfectly resolve evil at the same time, to demonstrate his love relationship to us. Romans 5 and 6 says it this way, you see at just the right time, and then it goes on to say Christ came to do his work for us. There was this plan at just the right time. In Galatians 6 it says, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. And we know from the teaching of Scripture on a, on a broader basis that we won't deal with today that, that, the, that his plan involved putting the law in place to help us realize our need. And then the plan was culminated in Jesus coming to perfectly take the penalty while at the same time 
perfectly showing us his love. And in that, he offers us another decision that would once again change our nature from a sin nature to a new creation. This decision of repentance, of allowing ourselves to repent and surrender to him and follow him and receive his forgiveness is more than just an action. It is something that he gives us, his Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, to live within us, to change our nature. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that he makes us a new creation. But the teaching goes on to tell us in the Bible that the battle is not those, the securely achieved. The, the victory, though, securely achieved, the battle is not done. And, 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 and we, we wrestle now through this time where, where God says we have this compelling mercy mission to do with him. During this time that we call in, the, in, in biblical discussions, we call it the time of the now and the not yet. And 1 John 3, 2 describes this. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now we have been given this new, crea- we are this new creation, this new nature because of the Spirit in us. And what we, what we will be has not yet been made known. And Romans 8 says this, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning we have this new creation, this, this new nature within us because of the Spirit of God Himself living in us, And working in us, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, the time when the completion of evil and suffering will be gone. And within this time, the Bible teaches us that we have a compelling mission. And the church, it talks about in Ephesians 3, as the main focus. It is our role, our mission, our dream that God gives us, that we be the ones that walk alongside of people to take them out of their pain to walk them through their pain to this point where justice will finally be done. And finally, in Matthew 12 through 19, Jesus alludes to the fact that that all evil will one day be dealt with. And he, and he he not only tells us, but he tells us our attitude towards one another and how we're to treat each other during this now and not yet time leading up to this completion. He says uh, in Matthew 12, 19, it says, He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Speaking to how he wants us to treat one another, how he looks at us when we're wrestling with the pain, when we're wrestling with this problem of evil, when it's affecting us, when the pain is there, his tenderness and how he wants to view us till he leads justice to victory. The problem of the now and the not yet is the fact that we want the not yet now. You know, we ask ourselves questions. Why has God not done away with evil? Why did, he, why did he wait so long to have Jesus come? Why, when Jesus came, did he heal so many people, but not me or not my sister or not my brother or not, not my friend? Why, why did Jesus come and conquer sin and death, but it's not fully gone? Why, 2,000 years after Jesus' coming, are we still struggling and billions more have continued to struggle since that time? Why couldn't he have just judged it all and done away with all the evil all at once. And I got to tell you, I don't find very many clear answers to that. That issue is a pretty much of a mystery to me. But here is one truth I want to emphasize that I think speaks to that. In Arizona, Loner, the guy who shot everybody, just because the judge has not yet 
judged him does not mean he won't. Just because God has not fully done away with evil and judged it completely yet does not mean he won't someday do that. We can trust God to set things completely right. In the closing, the uh, most arguments follow this outline. If God is all good, and if God is all powerful, then either there is no God, or number one or number two is not true. The Christian biblical approach to evil says, if God is all good, he will defeat evil. If God is all-powerful, he can defeat evil. Evil is not yet defeated. Therefore, God can and will one day defeat evil. Just because he hasn't dealt with evil yet doesn't mean he's not going to. And during this time, he invites us to be on a mercy mission to rescue people from evil. But ultimately, the approach to, to this whole issue isn't theoretical, it's relational. Because you know what? All these need answers. They don't solve your pain. Maybe they'll help one day lessen it. In the end, we all have to face the problem of evil simply by loving one another, being friends with faith, walking alongside each other through the difficulties, being honest with our own pain with other people. And the beauty is, you know, only a God who is perfect could come up with a beautiful plan to send Jesus to perfectly deal with our sin, to accept us now, even while we still are not perfect, to love us as though we were completely good again. And that same God, it says in the Bible, will one day come back to set it all right. In the coming weeks, we're going to, uh, we're going to deal with uh, things, uh, more questions. And if you've had questions today, I want to encourage you to submit those to us so we can maybe look at addressing some of those. Next week, we're going to start talking a little bit about how other people flee to other faiths in America, other faith positions. And we're going to talk about how the problem of evil is is dealt with there and and compare that with some other aspects of how Christianity thinks about that. And, And we'll deal with more issues in the future of that. But right now, I want to turn this over to Denise and beg your indulgence for just a few more minutes because to me, we will never be able to fully deal with these issues on a Sunday morning venue. And I really want you to get a picture today of what the Truth Project is like because whether it's now, which I hope it is, or someday, I want you to experience something like this. Wave your right hand at me. Oh, you comply so well. Wave your left hand at me. Okay, now shake your head a little bit. Okay. Your, your actual... Um, brain functions best and you retain memory if your heart's speeding at about 60 beats a minute and that always is better when you have oxygen flowing so i noticed some oxygen going down need to bring you back up all right good laughter oh that's a good thing too because you got some movement in the middle all right so a few quick announcements and then i have a story to tell our quest cards I know we've already done collection, um, but there are boxes in the back. So if you have a prayer request or a need, or if you want to just, you know, communicate with us so we can get you connected, please fill this out. Second, um, we have an announcement about it's wrong in your bulletin tonight. There will be no youth because they're going tubing. So some of you are going to have a nice evening alone because your youth will be on the slopes tubing. And I just wish you the best tonight. Have fun. 
Um, we have also baptisms next week. So if you're interested in getting baptized or your children are, please contact Jeremy Shelley, and he will get you hooked up for that. And coming up, not this Friday, but next Friday, is a family movie night here at Quest. So have your kids wear their pajamas, bring your pillows, bring your blankets, and we're going to spread them all out here. And on the big screen, we're going to have Toy Story 3 playing, free popcorn, free bottled water, maybe invite your neighborhood kids to come over for a sleepover and bring them here. You know, we're not going to be doing anything preachy. It's going to be fun community time for kids to be with each other and a really good-hearted night of fun. So that's February 20, I mean, February, my goodness, like just make time go fast. January 28th, that's 7 to 9, but that's in your card right there. Let's Do Lunch is right after service in the hospitality suite, so if you're staying to get to know us better, um, come and join us. You're going to be hungry probably if your stomach's not growling already. And last but not least, I want to tell you about the Truth Project. The reason I am here on staff at Quest is because of the Truth Project. I was called um, when Ross was doing a series in 2009 on listening to God's voice and all the ways that God speaks to us. And three times in a row, he kept telling me, Denise, not like that. You know, he was like, Denise. <laughs> I, I used to drive around Ohio a lot for the work that I do, and he was just kind of calling me, you need to do the Truth Project and bring it to a larger scale at Quest. And um, this is the time. The reason why it was so pivotal for me in my life is because most of you know I'm on this Quest um, with Ohio State University. Finished my doctorate. Yay, I'm collecting data now, finally. But I spent three years in like this funky transition because I didn't know what, where my beliefs fit in the realm of Ohio State. They told me that I had to figure out what I believed about where knowledge came from before I could do research. So they said, you can pick from this continuum. Do you believe that knowledge and truth is relative? That everybody has, you know, what's right and what's wrong depends on the person. That's postmodernism. And if you do, then the research methodologies you should choose from are these. And if not, if you believe everything needs to be observable and provable and it's right or wrong, black or white, well, then you're on the other end of the continuum, which is called positivism. And then you need to be doing experimental research, true experimental design. So my methodology needed to be there. And here I am. I'm like, you know, I'm like a fresh Christian. I'm reading the Bible. I'm leading a small group. And I'm like, I don't fit anywhere. So I spent three years getting a minor in research because I didn't know where I fit. And then I was looking for answers at Ohio State, and the answers for me were in the Truth Project. It's a 13-week study. comes from Focus on the Family. And my small group wanted to know, how do you take what you know deep down in your core, in your being, with all that you have about God, and how do you rationalize it in today's world? in our secular world and what we're bombarded with. And the Truth Project is about developing a comprehensive biblical worldview. It changes the way you see the world. And sometimes it's not always a good thing. I will see things on TV and I will yell at the TV now because it's so wrong. And I will hear conversations and I will butt in. And I 
have this new fire and this new flame, and I found my passion, which is what had me commit to coming to be on staff here because I want a chance to do something to help other people have the same passion. If you don't know what your passion is yet, well, then take the Truth Project because I think that you're going to discover it because you'll see something that just puts you on fire. So here's a little preview about the Truth Project. to take what could well be the most important tour of your life. It's going to be a worldview tour. We are going to turn and gaze upon the face of God. What should we hear? What should we see? You are going to be amazed. Why did Jesus come into the world? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know? From time to time, we're going to bring some experts into the classroom. The world is really with uncertainty. It's almost like it's in the air. Truth is fundamentally about who God is. We're challenged to either confront culture, to abandon it, or transform it. Is our culture filled with lies? This is a battle of worldviews. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Evil, what is it? Where did it come from? Why is it in the world? Who is God? Who is God? Who is man? What does God say about who man is? What takes us captive? What is intent? What is the world's view of work? God is a God of social order. We're going to look at economics, art, media, music, and literature in this sphere of labor. We're going to look at the area of philosophy and ethics. Everything is about relationships. There is no direction you can travel in which God has not spoken. We get over 250,000 letters and phone calls at Focus every month. And if you were to listen in on some of those, it would make your heart break. The body of Christ has so bought the lives of the world that we have not only conformed to the world, but we are suffering deeply from the consequences of believing those lies. We have become convinced that the only long-term solution to this problem is to rebuild those foundations, to build again that comprehensive biblical worldview within God's people. One of the effects of a comprehensive and systematic biblical worldview is that you're not as easy to fool. The effect we want to see upon people's lives is that they have that ability to discern and to be able to fend off uh, those lies and the illusions uh, that bombard them from every quarter of life. I guess in the end, what we're really after is that we will see God's people hunger for Him, that they will continually be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And what that means is, when He weeps, we weep. What He calls evil, we see as evil. What He calls glorious and good, we see as glorious and good. How do I know I am? 
exist. And if I do exist, where may do I If I think I exist, where did that thought come from? We're going to build the final pillar of history. We're going to look at the American experiment. Interest, union, union, fellowship, love. The God of the universe dwells within me? Wow. It gives me chills every time I see that and every time I do the Truth Project, and I'm so excited that we're going to be doing it here. There are about 11 small groups that have qualified, credentialed leaders to lead this. Focus on the Family is really strict about who leads this study and making sure that um, people have gone through a certain process. So I can guarantee that the people here in this congregation who are leading this have met those qualifications. I have two opportunities for you to sign up. You can either out here... Give me your name and your email, and I'll follow up with you today or tomorrow about getting you placed into a group that meets your needs. Or you can talk to me, um, or you can email me. So, yeah, it's all about me. But I want to make sure that you're placed in the right group. So we're not doing open sign-ups like we did for R12. You need to believe that Scripture is the ultimate authority in your life before you get into the Truth Project. So if you've accepted Christ and you want to know more and you want to strengthen your faith, then the Truth Project is the best way to do that. Thank you for indulging us for a longer service. Uh, This is not going to be the norm. Trust me on that. But uh, if you came here and you have a prayer need, we'd love to pray for you. God bless. Have a great week. Continue dreaming. I want to. I want to invite you. Uh, we're going to send out Monday again uh, follow-up things via email and on Facebook that you can do to further look at the topic we've talked about today. And I want to want to invite you as one thing to consider spending some extra time in prayer. Maybe even try the spiritual habit of fasting this week and and maybe meditate on Isaiah 58. I think that would relate to both our topic and to your seeking of God as to what He wants for you this year. God bless. Have a great day.